Happy uh, Labor Day weekend. Last big weekend, uh, of, uh, I guess, of the summer season. That's not officially over, but for all practical purposes, if you're not in school, you're probably truant, and you need to get back there. All right? They're waiting for you to show up. Uh, if, uh, if you have other plans or if you're on a job, you probably need to show up every day. But Labor Day, don't show up Labor Day. It's your day off, right? And uh, we kind of look at this as the end of the summer season and the beginning of the next season, which some people call autumn, other people call it football season. And uh, we're heading into the football season. And if you hadn't noticed, even yesterday, a couple upsets. Sorry, Sooner fans. Sorry, LSU fans. And nearly sorry, Razorback fans. Uh, but uh, so we are not one to be talking. But uh, every week's fun because you get to watch a new upset, a new somebody lose, a win, win, excuse me, the other team win, not losers, you know. But uh, you get to, it's just a, an exciting time. But uh, in the summer months, we like the summer months because it breaks us out of the rut. You know, April, about April or May, you start feeling like a rut. Okay, it's just like uh, the same, grinding it out, the same, grinding out school, grinding it out, kind of in a rut. But then by the end of summer, you hear the same parents and people saying, we need more routine in our life. We need more routine. Get back into the rhythms of life. And so if we do, we ebb and flow like that. Well, one of those things we like about the summer is we go places, we do things, we experience things, we, we travel, we go on vacations or, 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 or global adventures or wherever you might have gone. One of the things that, that our family is, uh, always takes a week or so, and I'm sure your family does too, uh, during, during the summers and goes on a vacation somewhere. Now, growing up international, or excuse me, uh, having our kids grow up internationally, experiencing the, the world, a lot, of, a lot of what our children uh, got from point A to point B uh, was by plane. I grew up in the day and age of road trip. Okay, and that's why I, I knew that that's how you got from point A to B, how you got to, on to vacation. So a few years ago, we decided to take our kids on a road trip, and we loaded up in our uh, in our in our shag wagon there or whatever the Honda Odyssey, and uh, we loaded it up, and you can see you couldn't fit anything else in there, and we all took off to the Grand Canyon, and it was a great trip. Our kids absolutely, you ask them to this day, what well, was one of your favorite vacations? They will list the Grand. Canyon road trip. And we limited the DV, DV, uh, D player. We, we, we wanted their eyes up and out and not down and focused on the, the things. Uh, and so it was, it was a good trip. And, but all along the way, we tried to have things to help them enjoy the journey. Uh, if you've ever gone from here to the Grand Canyon, you go through a whole lot of nothingness. Sorry, West Texas folks and, and, and New Mexico folks. There's some beauty out there. You've got to find it, though. Um, we stopped at the Big Texan. We ate at the Big Texan, if you know anything about that. We, uh, we graffitied some Cadillacs out in the middle of the desert that are po- poked in the ground. We did a bunch of things that were just fun to enjoy the journey. And that's the thing is you've got to enjoy the journey as much as the destination. But there is a destination. We were going to the Grand Canyon. Had we never made it to the Grand Canyon, it would have been a disappointment for me because I had never gone before. It would certainly have been a disappointment for our kids. It would have been a mission failure. You don't want to go on a trip and not know if you've gotten there or not. All right? Are we there yet? How many of y'all have ever just taken a trip to Branson and your kids go, are we there yet? Are you, have you ever heard that? Do you get annoyed? And as a parent, I don't know, I, I've never done this, but I'd like to do this. You know, one of those things is like, 
yeah, we're there. I just like driving around so you can drive me crazy uh, with his stupid questions. And so, you know, you're, you're there, okay? You're not, you're not there. Otherwise, you would stop and you would uh, put the kids out on the side of the road or something like that. It's just that are you there yet question needs to come up every now and then, and we need to deal with it. Uh, we, ha- as a church, are going to deal with this question. We're going to deal with it at a 30,000-foot level today. We're going to dive deeper into our own souls next week and the next week's following. But I think we have to see it up here before we can go down here. And I really ask the question, as a church, are we there yet? Are we there yet as a church from where we started? Now, 15 years ago, we started, okay? Now, that uh, is... to me, it seems like it was five or six years ago that we started uh, Grace Point Church in a living room and kind of it, it has grown. But when you go back 15 years ago, where were you? Just to put it into perspective, 15 years ago, we hadn't even launched yet. We were one month away from launching. But 15 years ago, uh, 9-11 happened, all right? In fact, next Sunday, we will be in this room and we will take a moment, we'll pause, we'll reflect on uh, 9-11, okay? And all the loss and all that has changed our, our nation, just as a moment of reflection. But that happened 15 years ago. So where were you 15 years ago? Put yourself on that timeline. Uh, maybe you weren't even here. So if you weren't even a, a, alive or born at that time, this is a person that was alive at that time. In fact, it was the youngest person in our church at that time, a seven-month-old little girl when we launched. Now, this little girl is still in our church. She's now 15, uh, obviously. She's in our church. And so if you know who she is, then you can come and tell me afterwards. And so the teenager are like, oh, okay, do the math. Do it in your head. All right, try to figure it out the rest of the time uh, that we're in our, in our gathering uh, together today. But this just kind of puts it into perspective, okay? Where were you? Are we there yet? As a church, You'll never know as an individual, you'll never know as a church, you'll never know as a company, you'll never know if you're there yet unless you have a clearly defined destination. Unless you know, (laughs) this is where we're going, okay? You'll never know if you've made it to the Grand Canyon unless you said that's where we're going. Where are we going? Where were we going 15 years ago when we started Grace Point? Where were we going then? It's the same place to this day. We are committed to this vision statement. Now, I have to tell you this up front. I stole this completely from somebody, okay? Uh, this is not original with me. The art of originality is the ability to hide your source, okay? So just remember that. So I was on a plane from South Africa to America, and I... Uh, I uh, I was talking to this guy who was starting a church in Minnesota. And he said, this is why we started a church. We started a church because we wanted to start a church for those who had given up on the church but hadn't given up on God. I said, bingo, that's us. And it wasn't just as a cool statement, but is that our vision that we'd be an authentic church for those who've given up on the church but haven't given up on God. And then I would dive into that and I would understand that and we would understand that and we would add people to our church and we would say, hey, this is why we're here. And we, we would talk about this again and again and again. You think the first time I've ever heard this, listen, 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 please. This is where we're aiming. This is where we're wanting to go. This is whenever we get there, we should know that we're there. And just to show you, 
that this is important enough to us. We actually ask the question every time we have a North Point class. Have you never gone to North Point? You've never been asked this question. We ask a question. We ask questions on a survey about how long you've been out of church and so forth like that. If we consider, if you've been out of church for a year, you didn't go last Easter, you didn't go Christmas, you, 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 then you, you've been out of church a while, okay? You're unchurched. Met somebody a few weeks ago out in our gallery area that been, hadn't been in church in 30 years. That person's unchurched. Okay, we are a church for those who've given up on the church but haven't given up on God. Okay, you, if you're a part of this whole family called Grace Point, you're a believer for those who've given up on believers but haven't given up on God. So just put it, make it very personal if you need to today because the reality is, is that we need to understand who we are and have we arrived. Are we there yet? Now, Barna, George Barna, I quote from him a lot. He's a, he's a pollster. He asks a lot of questions about America, and I, and I really do lean into him. And he asked this question about, about Americans. Now, here at Grace Point, we have found, going back on through, through these surveys, that 33% of the people that are a part of Grace Point, that have joined Grace Point, that have been a part of our North Point class, 33% of them came to Grace Point and were unchurched before coming. So I look at that and I go, that's not a passing grade. Okay, at 50%, we're not passing, but I'll be happy when we get to 50% of our church being those who are not affiliated coming. Now, I know that that means there's two out of three out there that, that, that came some other way. They either came from another church, which we don't really encourage that. We don't want to just church swap people around from one church to the next. In fact, I'll say this. If you're here because you're mad at the other church, go back and get happy at the other church before you come over here. All right? We don't need the madness over here. All right? So take your madness back there, get right, and then come back. And neither do you want to be mad at me and go somewhere else and take your madness over there. So figure out how, you, well, how, how you're going to get on your happy pants again and do that and then, and then figure out where God is, is leading you. We can also get people that move into the area from all over, obviously. Walmart brings a lot of people in. So we realize there's going to be some that went from a church in Atlanta or Dallas or wherever, and they move here and they join Grace Point. So that's all, that's all good and fine. And we're excited about that. But here's the key. We are a church. We exist to be an authentic church for those who've given up on the church but haven't given up on God. So in Barna, back to Barna. He's done this study. He found 114 million adults out there. About 42 million children and teenagers have left the church leaving a grant to 156 million U.S. Americans across our land that have said, I am not going to church. They haven't been in church the past six months. They don't, they don't intend to go back. That, that's, a, that's kind of a dark number for me. Just to put that into to, to scale and to break that down, because you need to understand the whole unchurched thing. What's the unchurched thing? Okay, what does that mean? Well, there's basically two major categories of unchurched. There's the de-churched, and that's those who've given up on the church. Okay, it's why we exist. And then they once went to church, but now they're out of church. And then there are those who never are churched. And sadly to say, that number is actually growing in America because there's been so many people that have left the church. Now they're raising the next generation of which their kids do not know in the Lord's Prayer. They do not even know John 3.16. They have no concept of prayer, no concept of God, the Holy Spirit, or anything else mystical or eternal. And it's a really dark number to think about. In fact, if you take all of the unchurched people across America and you were to make them one nation unto themselves, you would have the eighth largest nation in the world. 
right behind China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. It's a huge number that we're talking about here. Now, Barna goes on and he dives into northwest Arkansas, literally named Fayetteville, Springdale, Rogers, Bentonville, the whole area uh, of northwest Arkansas. What would that number look like? Found that there's 38% of northwest Arkansans, if you will, that don't go to church, don't have a church, don't have a church home, don't affiliate with a church, and, and in the past six months have not attended. So that's, again, one out of every, uh, out of every three that you're, that you're coming in contact, one out, excuse me, one out of every two that you're coming in contact with is, is in that category. Now, if you want to break that category down, uh, you think, Mike, where are you going with all this? I, I, I'm a, kind of a nerd in this area, okay? Because I want to answer the question, are we there yet? But I don't want to just feel that we're there. I want to know that we're there or know that we're not there because he facts are our friends even if we don't like the facts. And the reality is is that there's a whole group of people in northwest Arkansas that won't come to Grace Point today, that won't go to a new church startup today, that won't go to a a school building to to meet, or that won't meet anywhere else. They they don't even affiliate with with a a church at all. 38% of them across um, northwest Arkansas, 32% of them are de-churched. They, they've walked out of the church. They have 6%, 1 in 20, are, uh, they have never been associated with a church. But now you just take that category and say, okay, everyone else is church, right? No, because out of that category, those who attend church on a regular weekly basis, less than half. So basically what we have, here, here's the best case scenario across northwest Arkansas alone. You have a group, a large group of people that have left the church. Another large group of people that they go to church every now and then, but not on a consistent basis. And then you have a handful of people who said, listen, church is valuable. Family of faith is valuable. I care about them. They care about me. We love each other. There's a mutuality about this. We pour into each other. We make each other better, stronger, and happier. Let's talk about this group right here. Because this group, yeah, they hang out at church. But in reality, let's put it like this. If I was married to Lori, and I am, but if I was married to Lori and I decided that I thought I might go home once every two weeks and just hang out with her, would that be a pretty good marriage or be a pretty sour marriage? I wouldn't be married very long. You get the point. You call this a marriage, but yet you only show up ever now and then? No. Listen, what we're talking about is we're there whenever we are an authentic community, when we're an authentic church, when we're real broken with the warts and all exposed, and we're willing to be real and transparent with one another, and we're willing to, 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 to love each other unconditionally and forgive each other continually, and we're willing to do that, and we'll do the one another's with one another, then we're a church, then we're a family, then that's something you can really attach yourself to. Then the world out that's out there that has left us, may reconsider and see the value of us. But a lot of people have left. In fact, the fastest growing faith, this is according to Pew Research, the fastest growing faith, in fact, the only growing faith sectors, not mainline, not evangelicals, they are the unaffiliated, they've left the church, they're the nuns, and the atheist. That's the, fa- that's the only religious categories that are growing. Now, you don't need to hang on to the atheists for a moment. They're not, what's an atheist? I mean, how, how, can, how can they be going? Literally, people are moving away from believing in God. We had a person in our last service. 
share with me last week about a class he's taken in a local college and it has a religion, world religions professor who has told him, told them, told him that there is no God. What an oxymoron to be a religion professor and yet not believe there's a God. How is that? How does that come together? But we're living in a day and age where we're having to deal with a growing number of atheists, people who just don't believe there's a God. They're not belligerent about it. They're not mean about it. Some of them are not even intellectual about it in the fact that they've really dove into the thought. Because if you're saying that that there's atheists, that that, that there is no God, then basically you're saying you know everything. This is what I will say to an atheist. So you're saying you're an atheist. It means you know everything. Well, no, I don't know everything. Well, you say you know there's no God. Well, yeah, I know there's no God because I've studied that. But can we, can we rest on the fact that you don't know everything, but you believe that there's no God? So therefore, maybe, we, maybe in, the, in the part that you don't know, in the sphere that you don't know, maybe that's where God is. And then all of a sudden, you have an atheist becomes an agnostic. He really doesn't know if there's a God. Well, so then you can go on and you can say, hey, well, let me tell you about it. Because in the sphere that you don't understand or know that there's a God, that's a sphere that I've experienced God in, and He changed my life. And how you can begin to have conversations with people. Okay, let's get ready, guys and gals. You're living in a world that's left the church and is leaving the church and is walking away from God. And how are we going to deal with this? Let's take some lessons from the mid-60s. Now, not the hippies in the civil rights movement, 60s. Let's go to the 60s, literally, not 1960s. Let's go in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And let's look at the mid-60s, 30-something years following the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Now we're dealing with a time where the church is spread from all around the Mediterranean, all the way to Rome, all through Turkey, uh, around through the Middle East, around through Northern Africa. It's spreading like wildfire. They cannot contain it. It just keeps going and growing, going and growing. They consider it kind of a cult, if you will, of, of Judaism. But it is very distinguishable if you get into the, the ball in the high weeds, okay? It's very distinguishable. And if you were a Jew, you hated the Christians. And if you were a Christian, you were running for your life from the Jews because they were after you. In fact, it was so so clear that whenever Nero becomes... Now, Nero, you got to understand Nero. If you understand anything about Roman history, you understand Nero was the most evil, vile, violent, self-absorbed emperor of that time. He literally orders all of Rome to be burned because he wanted to rebuild Rome in his image. And, oh, by the way, when he, when he burned Rome, he blamed it on the Christians. So the Christians became persecuted. There was a Jewish revolution that happened in the mid-60s. And in that time period, they persecuted Christians and they persecuted Jews. So they were getting it from Rome. They were getting it from the Jews. They were getting it from all angles. Nero had them expelled from Rome. No Christians were allowed in Rome. And so this was this hostile, tense environment that we live in that they were living in. We come to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I can take you to the very day, a year ago, a year and about three months ago, 
that I read this verse, these two verses that I'm going to read today, and I have been wanting to share this message with you for a year and a half. Now, I didn't know everything. I didn't study it all then, but I have been marinating. It's been meditating. It's been on my heart. It's been on my mind. I've been looking at it again and again from so many different angles. And here today, I hope I can do it just a little bit of a justice. But here's the question that we've got to wrestle with. As you're raising the next generation in a world that is post-Christian, that is moving away from God, it's moving away from the church, as you're thinking about the next generation, how are we going to live in this generation with an increasingly hostile world against Christianity? We have been expelled from the schools. We've been uninvited from the city council meetings. We used to pray at football games on Friday night, and now you would never hear of that. There are so many things that have changed and moved our culture away from God. What are we to do with that? Two ways that we live as believers in an unbelieving world. One is we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. All right? We need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Let's read this passage of Scripture, and it'll come out real clear soon. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Okay? not neighbors, not friends, sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the, your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against the evildoers, uh, you, you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. We need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. We need to quit expecting this nation, the people of this nation, our friends, our politicians, or whomever else, to acknowledge God or the ways of God. Hey, Mike, are you just throwing in the towel? What about a Christian nation and all? Listen, this has never been a Christian nation. We are not a Christian nation. God did not die, send his son to die for a nation, a political party. He dies for individuals. And that's why it transcends political boundaries. It transcends gender and race. It transcends every other boundary to man. It transcends it all. And he, some of the greatest movements of God are happening in places, in countries that are not in any way have the Christian heritage that we enjoy. I do appreciate our Christian heritage, but it doesn't make us a Christian nation. How do we wrestle with this? Well, you notice the phrase that he used. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What's the deal with that? He literally recognizes and draws on a, a term from 500 BC, an exiles term, a term that gives the image and the idea that you are present here, but you belong there. So he calls them this exiles, these sojourners, that you are present in Rome or you are present in Jerusalem or you are present in Antioch. Whoever in, uh, ends up reading this letter, you're present in northwest Arkansas, but you don't belong here. You really belong somewhere else. But hey, while you're here, you're going to be considered different. You're going to be different. When you look at history, and I've been studying this for about the past six or seven years, so 
pardon me for vomiting all this up this morning to you, but please hang with me on it. Uh, so I want to give you several key periods of time, if you will, if you were to look at America, if you look at the, the world, if you will, um, in, in Christian history, okay? First of all, there's this, this pre-Christendom era. There's this time in which Peter is writing. It's the time in which there was not a Christian uh, uh, church on the, every corner. There was not instituted religion. There was, there was no schools. There was no hospitals or anything like that. It was just this rogue group of Jesus followers. They weren't even called Christians. They were just called the way. They were called followers of Christ. They were called so many different things, disciples, different things. And so it's from the birth of Christ really to Constantine. And then Constantine in 313 in the the Edict of Milan, he basically legalized Christianity across the Roman Empire, the Western strong empire world of that day, legalized it. Some people still debate today whether Constantine was a believer or not. We're not going to go there. But he just basically opened the door for an institutional church. Church was legal. Buildings began to pop up. Things began to change across the landscape, schools, churches, hospitals, everything, all the way through until you come to the fall of Bastille, until you come to the French Revolution. All of a sudden then, everything begins to collapse in. I'm a history buff, sorry, again, excuse, excuse me for this, but begins to collapse in on the morals and the fabric and the understanding of the church as it is. And then until the present... We have this post-Christendom. So you got really kind of three big bucket areas. I know people may, may divide it a bit differently, but these are three big bucket areas. Now, when you have the beginning of it all, Christians were looked at skeptically. And then Christians become accepted. And then you have now, again, a new day and age where Christians are looked at with a skeptic eye. Here's what I want to say. We have more in common with the first century than we do the 20th century, than the 19th century. We are living much like Peter and Paul and these guys lived in hostile environments where the morals of the fabric of society, where Rome had legalized homosexuality. Guess what? We're doing in our day and age where they, 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 they had temple prostitutes and it was okay, where, where all this immorality was there. And these Christians that were living at different standards, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? It's a different standard in which we will live by. How are we to handle this culture? There's been, again, tons written on this. One person put it in three basic, James Hunter put it in three basic bullet points. How we basically respond to this Christian faith or to this shifting in cultures. There's the evangelical response, the liberal response, and the countercultural response. And basically, you get in there and you defend it. That's the moral majority, folks. Liberals just accept it, embrace it. It's just the way things are going to go, so just accept it. And then there's the countercultural ones that just say, purify yourselves, run to the hills, take your kids out of the public schools, uh, go to private schools. Listen, I, I can say that because our kids have done it all, okay? And so, you, you know, you just kind of run away from the culture and you hide yourself in a huddle. You, you get the Christian business leader's handbook and you only shop from Christian business guys because you only want to help the Christians out. And you live this kind of sheltered, purified life. And I don't see any one of those the way Peter's telling us to live. He's telling, you're, you're going to live as a sojourner. You're going to live as an exile. You're going to live feeling a little uncomfortable. 
with the world in which you live. I think a better way is to live in the culture and be a light to our culture. To live in it and to be a light to it. To so that the world that's outside the church, outside of Christ, they will see the difference in us. Let me read to you from a first century Roman writer who was not a believer. A writer for the Roman Empire said this about this Christian movement. They marry like everyone else and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to a higher standard. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They lack everything yet overflow. Of, uh, uh, they lack everything yet overflow in everything. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. Wow. An unbeliever writes that about a believer. And if I tell you what, if I live in a bubble and I live so segmented from the lost and dying world out there, the world will not write that about me. But if I am living in and being light to, the world will see a difference in me and they will write a similar story. It will get messy. It will be hard. You will find yourself dealing with temptation. You will find yourself struggling between the tension of good and evil yourself. But that's what we're called to do. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We are in a difficult place in a difficult land. So get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Number two way. Because in this passage, he goes on, and I just want to say this, live the good life. Live the good life. When the unbelieving world looks at us, some of them will hate to see the way that we talk or the way that we live, especially when our talk and the way we live do not match up, especially when there is not grace and truth, but there's only truth, especially whenever we do not speak the truth in love, as Paul said, but we stand on our rightness. On, uh, we, we, the, the world looks at us and they go, what good are you? What good are you? The world looks at the church in many forms today and they say, we know what you're against, but do we know what you're for? We know what you're against, but do we know what you're for? 49% of the unchurched, this was published in Christianity Today, 49% of the unchurched Americans who cannot identify a single way Christianity has positively impacted the United States. That's a sad tale. They cannot look at the church. The unbelieving world cannot look at the church and say, that church is really, you know, it's helped our community. We're better because they're here. Uh, one Puritan preacher was talking to a guy three centuries ago. Got to remember the time frame. He was talking to this guy who had just be, become a follower of Christ. He, he was asking, how do you know you're a follower of Christ? He said, because there's this amazing feeling inside of me. He said, what else? 
He paused and the Puritan said, listen, if Jesus made a difference inside of you, even your horse will know. Even your horse will know. Listen, we don't ride horses today, but your car will know that you're a believer because all of a sudden the speed limit will become relevant to you. The good life that I'm speaking of here is very important to understand and put our arms around because what the pagan world, the unbelieving world needs to see is they need to see a marked difference in us. Let our life be an attraction, not our words a distraction. And that's what we have to be careful about. He said in the NIV version, he said, let live such good lives among the pagans. Live such good lives. Are you living such a good life that even your horse, or even your friends, or even your neighbors, or even your work associates, they just know there's a difference in you. What's that difference? There are two ways that we are going to live the good life. One is when we live by purpose and not by passions. We all have passions in us. But if we're going to live by purpose, then we're going to be much better. It says in verse 12 again, he said, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, here's one thing that's very, very important for you to understand. When he calls us to abstain from the passions of the flesh, he is referring to natural, bodily, chemical desires inside of you. And if you let the natural desires of your flesh tell you what to do and not purpose and principles, you will be a train wreck waiting to happen. You'll find yourself rewriting moral codes of conduct because you're living for your passions and not principle and purpose. The passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. When we're living by principle and purpose, there will be a marked difference in us. Our integrity will be known. People will be able to trust your words, your actions, your thoughts, because there's a marked difference in your integrity. Talked about that last week. Will you sell your character for a buck fifty ticket at a, ho- at, at a movie theater? Your integrity should have a marked generosity, should mark you. It's one of the markings. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave his only begotten son. Listen, so the reality is is that when I am giving and generous in my life and my finances, when I am giving and generous in my times and my talents, guess what? I'm like Jesus. I'm like God. And there ought to be a marked generosity. I used to have a man in my former church, in one of my former churches over in eastern Arkansas, who was a very generous man. You didn't know it by, you didn't know how wealthy the man was by his car, by his home, or anything. He just lived at a different standard. He lived below his income standard. He told me the story of whenever he used to go to the accountant. His accountant was an unbeliever. He would go in with his, all of his receipts. He'd go in with all of his tax returns and all of his information and all of his contributions to his church that he was very committed to give to, plopped it down. And er, at first year, the, the accountant says, well, you know, you're looking good. You got all these deductions. He, he says, but man, you could do a lot with this money that you're giving away. So you, you can give it to me and we can look at investment opportunities or right, make, make, make money on top of your money. And the, and the guy was just really clear. He said, no. I'm committed to this. 
I'm committed to giving to my church first and foremost. I'm committed to this. And you know what? My, my family's never lacked for anything. My marriage is good. My happiness is at an all-time high. I, my life is good. I'm going to keep on the track I'm on. Okay. Backs off. Next year comes around, plops it all down there, gave even more, made even more. Okay, what, 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 here's again another opportunity. About four times of talking to his accountant, his accountant saying it every year. Finally, the last words he said that he told me when he was telling me this story was, the accountant said back to him, your faith is real. Your faith's real. It's legit. See what? The world's watching us. It may take them one year, two years, three years, four years. But I pray to God, they look across the table at you and they say, your faith is legit. The generosity should, be marked, should mark us. Hospitality, not hostility to strangers. You read the scriptures. There's, a, there's literally the gift of hospitality is the spirit of God. But yet we have this thing going on around us where it's me, myself, and I and close the borders and build walls around the borders and, and things like that. I'm sorry, I may meddle a little bit here, but the Great Wall of China was built to keep the Mongols out. Are we going to have the Great Wall of America? Is that what we're aiming at? I'm sorry. Deuteronomy 10, 19, you are to love those who are foreigners. That's the mark of a believer is whenever you're a safe place. Sympathy. Do you have that level in business whenever people around you see the difference in the way that you're going to do fair trade? You're going to make sure people have a fair wage. You're going to do things that are right for the employees as well as right for the people you're buying from, not just right for yourself or right for the company's bottom line. You're going to do what's right in the business. What about forgiveness and reconciliation? You know, we need to be the place that with the greatest amount of forgiveness and the greatest amount of grace and the greatest amount of reconciliation happens is in God's church. Moral standards. What about that? How do you, how do you act? Because here's what's going to happen. Your passions are going to rule you or purpose and principle will rule you. What will it be? I had a deacon, one of our deacons in our church, tell me this past week over, over breakfast. He told me of his standard that he will not ever have, and this is true of our pastors, but he says it's even true in his business world. He will not have a meal with a female that's not his wife. He told his boss that when he got hired. He said, I will not have a meal with somebody. His boss said, you're crazy. So that will not work in the business. I mean, work over there. And he did point out his boss has been married three times. See, if we will live at a different moral standard, Will the world notice that we're living the good life? Number two is when your creeds inspire your deeds. Notice what he said in verse 12. He says, they may see your good deeds. They may say all manner of thing against you, but when they see your good deeds. See, listen, we got all kinds of churches out there with all kinds of creedal statements and doctrinal statements. Listen, at the end of the day, if you have this creedal statement, whether you're Baptist, Methodist, whatever, non-denominational, what are they anyway? You know, they're nothing. They have their own doctrinal statements somewhere in there. So you have these doctrinal statements. Forget statements. Let's look at your life. What does your life say? 
Again, you go to the Sermon on the Mount, the only message in the Bible that's ever presented is presented by Jesus, and he's literally calling them out of their religious box, out of their religious do's and don'ts, into a deeper walk with him. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, let your light shine. What did I just say earlier? How are we to be in the culture? Live in and be a light to our culture. Now he says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, not your creeds, and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Listen, why do we have a Hope in Action Day? Why do we have a community talk scripture? Why do we do all this kind of stuff? It's all built around the idea that we want this world out there to see that we love them in here and we love them not only with our lips, but with our lives. We're going to take one day on October 1st and we're just going to love on families that are doing foster care. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to ask our community groups and we're launching 15 new groups this month. You want to learn how, how to be a part of a 15, of one of our new 15 groups? Then let, just let Randy know. Shoot Randy an email. Just say, hey, I want to find out about one of those groups. I'm starting a men's only group on Monday mornings. So the point is, is that there's going to be groups all over. What's about the communitas thing? It's a, it's, it's a Latin word that means that we are for our community. We're for our community. We're not just for our little holy huddle. We are for our community. And how can we be a blessing to our community? We are going to live the good life in a very uncomfortable setting. But when we get comfortable with being uncomfortable, when we, when we live the good life and not just talk about the good life, I think the world will take notice. But here's a question that's been haunting me since probably about 23. I can still remember where I read this in a journal. And if I dug hard enough, I could probably find the journal article because it has impacted me so much. One question I want to ask you, and I want you to ask you, as I ask me this same question. The band's going to come and they're going to play and we're just going to have a time where... You're going to get to set where you're at and reflect on this one question. Here it is. What kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me?